for this portion of our morning. Uh, many of you know, uh, some of you may not, but many of you know that uh, Awaken declared, we felt like God led us to a point uh, from about January to Easter where uh, we spent a lot of time in prayer as leaders and asked God what would, if there was one thing we could focus on as a community, kind of our, our putting our efforts towards one thing, what would it be? And we felt like over and over and over again that we were led to, we had conversations with uh, people who responded to our emails and phone calls. Uh, the issue of hunger continued to come up again and again and again. And so at Easter, uh, we asked God, uh, what would it look like for us to, for this next year, at least until next Easter, uh, and maybe longer, for us to focus on hunger uh, as our community or communal, our community's one thing that we would, we would focus on. And so uh, we did a series a while back about uh, one thing and kind of kicked that off. And we talked about a lot of different things. Uh, we talked about this idea of that poverty is not something that's um, solely an economic issue, but that poverty is something that is far deeper than just the money in our pockets. Uh, I think a lot of times as, as Americans, when we think about the, the rich and the poor, uh, it, t- it typically goes right to dollars and cents. Who has money is rich, and who doesn't have money is poor. And so when we talk about poverty, that's typically how we understand it. And we kind of unpacked and explored the idea that poverty is way more complicated than that. And that it's very, very easy, in fact it's possible and it's real, to have plenty of money to be rich and still be impoverished. To have a poverty of spirit or a poverty of uh, uh, you know, spir- uh, spiritual poverty. There's lots of different ways to break that down. And so we kind of unpacked that and explored those ideas. And uh, a few of the takeaways from that series were the garden. Number one, we'd love to do community gardening, gardening and uh, we couldn't make that happen this season for us here. And so we jumped on board with Project Food Patch down there, and that's been a blast. Uh, one of the ways that we were going to get involved was through Neighbors, Inc., and I'm going to introduce John in just a moment. He's going to come in and share a little bit. Uh, with doing, They do a, an, a summer feeding kind of deal for kids who are on free and reduced lunches during the summer. And unfortunately, the details of that didn't work out, and when we could be there and when they were actually packing those didn't work out. But um, what we want to do is not forget about one thing. I think it would be very easy for us to talk about something and be really well-informed people about hunger and about the issues of uh, hunger and poverty in our community, to be well-informed about that. But here's been my prayer as of late. I feel like we are, uh, we've done some, some good work so far. We've spent some time talking about the issues. We've spent some time discussing them, uh, reading a little bit about them. And I feel like we're pretty well-informed. We could certainly be more informed. But I feel like there's a transition that needs to take place in our community, in my own life, in my own heart. So I'm not talking, uh, I'm not speaking at you all, I'm speaking with us. Um, but I feel like as a community, the next step for us is to move from being well-informed people who know something about hunger and poverty to being people who actually have relationships with people who are struggling with hunger and with poverty. Uh, that's a very different deal. And so as a, as a core team, uh, we've been talking about this again and again, and it comes up almost at every monthly meeting and uh, we feel, uh, I don't know, maybe even a bit frustrated, like, ah, what is it? And, and God, could you be more clear? Because some of the things we've tried haven't worked, and uh, so on and so forth. And so last week, we challenged you to, to fast with us uh, for the rest of this month. Uh, and some of you are doing that. I appreciate that a lot. Um, to just ask God, what would it be? Uh, is, are there some things that we can do? Uh, is there some imagination pieces that haven't been tapped into as far as how do we do this better? Or what, how do we get from here to the next place where we feel God's moving us to. So today is about that. It's about learning more, 
um, and giving you guys an opportunity to ask some questions. So I'm going to ask John if you would come on up. Uh, this is my friend John Kemp, and uh, John is uh, employed and I think the director at Neighbors, Inc., which is uh, up in South St. Paul, uh, and he'll tell us a little bit more about uh, his story. But um, So welcome, John, if you would. It's the first time I've ever been. A, yeah, yeah, it's good. First time I've ever been asked to come and speak next to a sign that says "Joke Joint Comedy Club." There so you go. We'll be here all week, John. Try to live so. up to my reputation. <laughs> uh, so, John, tell us just a little bit about uh, your role at Neighbors, how long you've been there, and some of the things that Neighbors does, if you would. Super. Um, uh, I'm the executive director at Neighbors, and I've been there. This is my ninth year now as the CEO of that organization. Uh, Neighbors was uh, born out of economic crisis uh, 40 years ago. Uh, if any of you are from this area originally and, and uh, have families who grew up in this area, you probably know that at one time the world's largest uh, cattle auction and livestock auction yard in, uh, was in South St. Paul. And as a consequence of that, beginning in the 1880s, there were two very, very large uh, meatpacking plants that grew up along the river down there run by Armour and Swift. And in the 60s and early 70s, both of those organizations made the decision to shutter those plants and, and move elsewhere uh, for their meatpacking operations. And that, over a period of a few years, put 9,000 people directly out of jobs. Uh, it also closed a whole lot of bars on Concord Boulevard in South St. Paul, but 9,000 people lost their jobs and ancillary jobs that went with that because of all the support services that were a part of, of that whole operation. So by 1971, the faith community in this area, members of the faith community were being overwhelmed by people knocking on their doors and saying, can you help us? We need 50 bucks for food, or we need help with our rent, or we need this, or we need that. And so late 1971, uh, half a dozen of those faith communities, initially just in South St. Paul, sat down to talk about how, as a group of, of uh, congregations, they might be able to better serve the needs of people who were finding themselves more and more in need of assistance. And in January of 1972, Neighbors was uh, born out of those discussions. Six churches became 10, became 15, became 20. Today we work in relationship with 32 or 33 faith congregations throughout Northern Dakota County. We are an independent 501c3 organization. Uh, we are not affiliated with any uh, denomination or congregation, but we work with a wide variety of congregations and denominations. It's a uh, you know, it, when you do the kind of work that we do, you always hope that you'll put yourself out of work. Um, and um, I have to think probably 10 years ago, we thought maybe we were making progress towards that. And, uh, and then things fell apart again. And it's ironic, I think, as we now prepare to celebrate our 40th anniversary, that we find ourselves basically where we were in 1971 and 1972 when we were born, dealing with severe economic crisis in our community, trying to find ways to help those people who need that kind of assistance. Neighbors serves an area that I call the bend in the river. It's the seven communities that comprise northern Dakota County. Starts over here with Lilydale and Mendota and Mendota Heights, Sunfish Lake, West St. Paul, South St. Paul, and Invergrove Heights. That's the territory that we've been assigned over the years by uh, to serve with a food shelf, and so that's the territory that we've come to adopt as the area that we serve. Um, we are primarily a basic needs organization, and so that means we do food, clothing, and shelter. And we have programs that address all of those. I'll talk more about hunger mm -hmm. as, and food as, as we go along. 
Uh, we also do a very large holiday program, a Christmas program, where last year we helped 880 families celebrate Christmas uh, with toys and clothing and gifts and food for uh, the members of their families when they're a family that otherwise would probably not be able to, to celebrate in the same way that, that many of their children's uh, friends and families do. Uh, we do a, a back-to-school program. Uh, there's a faith community now in Invergrove Heights that has taken on the actual work of that program, and so we now provide them, uh, gather and provide them with school supplies. But we try to make sure that every kid in the school districts of South St. Paul, Invergrove Heights, West St. Paul, Mendota Heights have everything that they need to start school in September in terms of a backpack and pencils and pens and crayons and rulers and everything that is on the list of things that if you have children, you can go into Target or Walmart and you can find the list for your school and for your kid's grade and find out what you need. We try to take care of those needs as well. Um, we also have uh, several uh, supportive services programs that are more oriented towards older adults or people with disabilities. Uh, we have a transportation program that helps people get to and from medical appointments using volunteer drivers in their own vehicles. We do a telecare program where volunteers call people who are confined to the home on a daily basis, 365 days out of the year, to make sure that they are safe and their needs are being met. Um, we have a program called Come As You Are. It's older than we are. We inherited it from First Presbyterian Church of South St. Paul about 36 or 37 years ago. It's a program for developmentally disabled persons. It meets twice a month and provides them with a safe and secure place to come and, and socialize and, um, and, uh, and be supported uh, in their own uh, community and with people who aren't going to be looking at them askance and frowning on them for being out in the community. It's a, probably a program that has outlived its, outlived its time because in the 60s and 70s, people with developmental disabilities were very much confined to the home. Today, they're out in the community frequently. I mean, it's hard to go into a fast food restaurant or a store and not find people who live in group homes there with their attendants uh, being accessing the community and being a part of it. Uh, but many of the people who come today are people who started coming in the 60s and 70s and don't want to part with the program, and so we continue that program. We have also just started a brand new program. We call it Friends and Neighbors. We're looking for people on, on both sides of the equation. Neighbors are people who maybe live by themselves or live with one other person but are not able to access the community on a regular basis for whatever reason. Neighbor And friends are people who say, I've got some time to help, and so we'll match up a friend and a neighbor, and the friend will assist that person on a fairly regular basis in getting into the community and seeing to it that they have a chance to do the things they want to. The very first match we put together about a month or so ago, the, the, the woman who was being uh, assisted called us up after her first visit out into the community, and she just was agog with, with, uh, with pleasure. And she said, I got my driver's license renewed, I got my hair done, and I had Kentucky Fried Chicken. The world doesn't get any better than this. And that's what Friends and Neighbors is all about, is giving people an opportunity to do those kinds of things when, when they want to. I've left out some programs. I'm sure I'm forgetting them. There are 13 or 14 programs that we do all together, uh, but our primary emphasis is on, uh, uh, on basic needs and our secondary emphasis on persons who are confined to the home. Who knew, who knew that KFC was all it would take, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, in your time at Neighbors, how has hunger um, changed maybe in the last five to ten years? You've been there six years as CEO. I'm assuming a little bit longer just involved, but how have you seen hunger change to where we're at now? Um, 
for a long time, and nine years ago when I first got there, this would have been the case. Most of the, if not all, of the people that we that we worked with in our food shelf, people who came because they didn't have sufficient food for themselves and their family, uh, were very low-income people who had come from families that had pretty much always been very low-income. And um, um, and that was pretty consistent. You know, Ninety-five percent of the people we served were people who needed help on a continuing basis uh, of one kind or another. Um, we saw that gradually begin to change even eight, nine years ago as uh, as the nature of Northern Dakota County changed and immigrant populations began to move out of Ramsey County and into Dakota County, and all of a sudden we began to see uh, many more people of color than we had been seeing before. Uh, today, uh, probably a third of the people that we serve are of Latino background, a third of the people that we serve are everything other than Caucasian or Latino, and about a third of the people are, are Caucasian. It used to be 95% were Caucasian. So we've seen that change, and we're seeing more and more hunger in the immigrant communities and in the in communities of color that have, have settled in our area. In the last four years, there has been a really dramatic shift in, uh, in, in hunger in our community. And I, I will cite just one instance, which may be a, a dramatic instance and not the norm, but I think speaks to the whole issue. About 10 days ago, I happened to wander out in the front, and there was a gentleman who had just come in and gotten some bread and uh, something for breakfast off of the off the bakery shelf that we have available to everybody on a daily basis. And uh, he got chatting with the volunteer who was working at the front desk. And, and so I overheard the conversation. I didn't participate in it. And I heard her say to him, are you looking for a job? And he said, I'm always looking for a job. I have a job, uh, but I'm always looking for a job. I have a job that pays me $10 an hour. And I start at seven o'clock, at five o'clock in the morning, and so by one or two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm pretty bushed uh, every day. Uh, but at least I have a job. They chatted for a little while longer, and he said, uh, three years ago, uh, we had a family income of two hundred thousand dollars a year. Today, our family income is ten dollars an hour. Both he and his wife were professionals who got caught in some of the early waves of the layoffs after the recession set in. She has never worked since; has not been able to find a job. Uh, since then, he only just four or five months ago found this job at $10 an hour is, and is back to work. The dramatic shift that we've seen over the last three or four years has been people who have always been middle class, even upper middle class folks, who now find themselves in need of assistance because their unemployment benefits have run out, their savings have run out, they're probably upside down in their mortgage, they've had their cars either taken away or they've struggled to keep up their automobile payments with the unemployment uh, compensation they've had, and now they don't have any of that left and they still don't have jobs. And so when we used to see people who were employed who came to work, it's because their hours had been cut back or because they were working for 10 or $12 an hour. That's all they'd ever worked with, and it wasn't good enough to get them through to the next paycheck. What we're now seeing is people who used to be at a significantly different level having to try and learn, how do I live at this level? Because I'll probably never be back there again. Sure. And that's what we're seeing in a big way now. Um, by the way, uh uh, at, at, in a few moments, we're going to kind of open this up, and I'd love for it to be uh, an opportunity for Absolutely. you guys to ask questions. So if you're thinking of things, jot them down or, or remember them. Um, in light of that, so we're a small faith community in Lilydale, which actually is on the map. Most people don't think it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, and we're trying to get involved in, we feel like God is leading us, pushing us, encouraging us uh, towards getting involved in this issue of hunger. In light of some of the things that you've seen, um, how would you, what would, what would be some encouragement you might have for us? Steps, even practical steps of, have you tried this? Or you might want to call this 
person or um, yeah well um, the, the dilemma for me is to provide you with some thoughts relative to how the congregation can help in ways that don't necessarily get you in direct one-on-one -on -one contact with people who are hungry on a regular basis um, and also with ways that do uh, get you in, 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 in that kind of opportunity. So let me start with the, the first of those, where, where you can provide assistance without, having, without being directly involved with, with people who are hungry. Sure. Um, uh, your community garden idea is spectacular. Um, the fact that the garden that you're working at this year has done 3,000 pounds of, of, uh, of, of produce just makes me drool. Um, we can't keep produce in our food shelf uh, everything that comes in in the morning is gone by mid-afternoon. I mean, it's just the way it is. And the unfortunate thing is sometimes uh, uh, people bring stuff in on Friday afternoon. Um, and, and so by Monday morning, it's not necessarily the healthiest thing. And so anything we get, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, is food that just goes out the door instantly and, and helps a lot of folks. And we're really big on nutritional food and trying to make sure that people get that kind of variety. So um, what you're doing, however you're distributing, whatever is happening with the food that you're doing, it's a great idea. If you can do your own community garden and you've got people who like to do that stuff and you can keep it up, that's wonderful. I would beg you to make it available to people in whatever is the most appropriate way for you to make it available to people because uh, uh, the, 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 when we ask our clients every year in a sur survey what the, the, the things are that they need most, dairy product is always at the top of the list. Produce is always directly below dairy product and meat is directly below that. And those are, for uh, organizations like ours, often the most expensive things to be able to provide people. Um, and, and so any help that any of the food shelves in the metropolitan area get with produce is, is uh, very, uh, very much appreciated. So work at that. That's a great idea. Uh, food drives. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I'm a storyteller. You have to forgive me for that, okay? Uh, about uh, now two years ago, um, uh, a father and his daughter came to see me. And uh, the, the girl was seven years old. And she and her mom had been driving by the Dorothy Day Center a few days earlier. And she said to her mom, why are those people standing on the street out there? And her mother said, well, they're people who are waiting to get inside to get some food and, and hopefully to find a place to sleep. And the little girl said, mommy, we have to do something about that. So she went home and talked with her daddy about this. And her daddy, as it turned out, was unemployed and had been for 18 months. And they were, in fact, clients of neighbors. And she talked to her dad about this. And uh, he said, well, you know, there's not really anything we can do to help the Dorothy Day Center. They talked about it for a little while. And he said, but you know what we could do? We could, we could go raise food for our local food shelf and feed people through the food shelf. And so he came to say, can we do this? I said, ah, you know, sure, we can always use 100 pounds of food. That's great. So over three weekends, over the next six weeks, this girl printed off letters to all of the people in her neighborhood telling them who she was and what she was going to do, took them and put them at their doors, and in the letter said, my dad and I will be back on Saturday to pick up bags of food. If you want to help, put the bags of food out on the porch. We'll pick it up, and we'll take it to, to neighbors. And in those three food drives, that little girl by herself brought in over 2,000 pounds of food. One little seven-year-old girl. And 2,000 pounds of food sounds like an awful lot of food, right? probably as much food as we have in our house on maybe every six-month basis. 
But in our food shelf now, we're putting over 30,000 pounds of food every month out the door. And uh, we'll probably this year, before the year is over, put out well over 400,000 pounds of food because then the need keeps going up. So, long-winded story, one of the things that could really be helpful for us or for any other food shelf that you chose to get, get involved with would be do some food drives. Don't just do your own food drive. Do some food drives where you get out and engage your neighbors and your friends and other people in this whole idea of helping people who are, who are hungry. Badly, badly needed. In terms of being directly involved, uh, the only hot meal program that I know of that's open to the public, any place from downtown St. Paul all the way to the southern end of the border of Dakota County is at St. Matthew's Church. Catholic Church on the west side of St. Paul. There is no other hot meal program that I know of any place. And one of the things on my to-do list is to find a congregation or congregations who are interested in tackling that problem sometime in the next couple of years and taking on the task of organizing some kind of hot meal program that will allow people in our community to have a safe place to come and get a hot meal at least once a week, if not once a day. Uh, much like the program that, that is at St. Matt's, which is a loaves and fishes program, and they do wonderful stuff, and partnering with loaves and fishes would be a, a terrific thing to do. That's something that, that is badly needed in our community. Um, another program that we don't have, um, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought, so I'll go back to that. We started three years ago trying to find a way to put extra food in the bellies of children in the summertime because kids during the school year have access to one or two meals a day through the uh, free and reduced lunch programs in schools. In the summertime, they don't have access to that food. And so their parents take on the extra task of feeding those kids five or ten extra meals a week because the kids are now at home and don't have access to that. The government has programs, but there was nothing available in this part of Dakota County for those kids. And so three years ago, we started in one, two schools, one meal, uh, during summer school, and, and about 350 kids in each of those schools, elementary schools, were there for, for summer school for five or six weeks, and so we provided kids with breakfast at, at those meals, and we served about 8,500 meals to kids that first year. Last year, 2010, uh, the schools asked us if we would expand to three ch schools and if we would do both breakfast and lunch, and so we did that, and in those three schools, we served about 22,000 uh, kids, or 22,000 meals uh, during summer school. Now I say we did, you did. We went out and got faith communities and people who work in those faith communities to say, you know what, I can spend a day or a week, the week is only three or four days long, uh, working to serve kids in that school. And so all we did was organize it and get the faith communities interested and involved in helping serve those kids their meals. And so we served those meals this year, we did the same thing we did last year. Summer school is a little bit longer. It looks like by the time they finally get through counting the numbers, we will serve 26 to 27,000 kids or 27,000 meals to kids during summer school this year. Tip of the iceberg, but it's a lot better than nobody. We also started last year a kids' meal pack program where we pack bags of food with a lunch and uh, breakfast, uh, food for lunches and breakfast in a bag. There's enough food for uh, five breakfasts and five lunches for each of two kids. And now anybody who has children who qualify for free and reduced lunch can come in once a week and pick up one of those bags and take it home and uh, have it for their kids. 
uh, in, in just the month of July, we sent 20,000 meals out the door uh, in that kid pack program. That also takes a lot of volunteer labor just to put the food in the bags and make it ready to go. Um, if the fire marshal came into our building, uh, he would close us down because you can't get up and down the halls. They're filled up with bags of food for kids, but it's, it's what we need to do, and we do that. Every program that we do, doesn't matter what it is, every program that we do is basically run by volunteers. That's been our model since the day we began. What we do, we do through volunteers. So last year we had 1,249 volunteers provide something in excess of 30,000 hours of work or about the equivalent of 16 full-time people. The staff at the same time right now, it's the biggest it's ever been, we have 10.1 full-time equivalents on staff. So everything we do, we do with volunteers, and, and that's, how we, that's how we live. Okay. I've got one question brewing, but I want to uh, see if uh, there are questions here, questions that you guys have uh, that John might be able to answer related to our journey with one thing and hunger. <clears throat> Don't be shy. Terrific question, and uh, repeat the question a little bit. Uh, the, oh, I'm sorry. The question was: uh, Are there things that we do beyond just providing food to people that help prepare them uh, for the future and help get them ready for the future, so that we're not just giving food to people? We're also, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, we're also providing them with perhaps access to jobs, but so also access to life skills that'll help them cope in the future. The answer is yes, in a, in, in in very short form, uh, and we do that in a, in a variety of ways. Um, Every person, every family that comes to the food shelf for the first time in the course of a year uh, is screened uh, through a program called uh, Bridge to Benefits, which is a program that allows us to work with them to identify any federal or state benefits that they might be eligible for that they're not receiving. And so we, we make a huge push to get people involved in the SNAP program, the, food, the, the federal government's food support program, uh, because the whole community benefits when people do that. If somebody gets... Pick a number, $400 in food benefits, food support benefits from the federal government uh, each month, then A, they can go to the store and get whatever they want with that as long as it's food. You can't buy anything other than food. And B, that's money that goes into the local economy that otherwise wouldn't be going into the local economy. And uh, until a couple of years ago, Minnesota had one of the lowest participation rates of any state in the country in the federal food support program. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but there's been a huge effort to try and um, eliminate the barriers. We've gone from about 40% of the people who are eligible to this year it looks like about 65% of the people who are eligible. So that's one of the things that we do. We do a lot of referrals to other programs and other organizations that can assist people. One of the reasons we always put people through an intake process is so that we can find out what's going on. I have always said that people don't come to us because they want food. They come to us because they need food. What they want is a job. 
And so part of what we're trying to do is work with people to find out what is it that precipitated the need for you to come in today. Why do you not have the money you need to buy food? Is it because your rent is unaffordable? Is it because your car broke down and you've had to use your food money on the car? I mean, let's, let's find out what the root causes are so we can help you there. And if we can't help you, we can refer you to people who do. So we do you know, 10,000 referrals a year to, to people who, who come in. We're about to move into a new building. Uh, we've purchased a building also in South St. Paul, but it's uh, at least double the size of the building that we're in now so that we're going to have more room. And one of the things that we're setting up in that new building uh, that will be, uh, we hope, active uh, right after the first of the year is a cooperative program with the Workforce Center, which is in Dakota County, is headquartered right here in, 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 or in West St. Paul, at the county office building in West St. Paul. We are dedicating a couple of computers in isolated areas in our new space to be hooked up directly to the Workforce Center's job opportunities uh, program so that people who come to us for assistance, if they are actively seeking employment, can sit down at one of these computers. We're going to have, we hope, volunteers that will help them navigate it, and they can begin to search for employment opportunities without having to go up to the county office building and get in line with all the rest of the people who are up there doing that. At the same time, we're going to be uh, piping in their training programs so because they do programs on dressing for success, on uh, resume preparation, on interviewing skills, uh, those kinds of things that an awful lot of folks need some help and coaching with in order to be able to successfully uh, apply for an interview the, for the jobs that they're after. And we'll be broadcasting those and webcasting those in our new facility, again, for our clients who have a need for those kinds of things. Uh, if it were possible for us to say to everybody that comes in a place, you don't need food, you need a job, and here's a job, we would do that. But that doesn't work, especially in today's economy. Did I answer your question? Okay. Good question, Courtney. Thanks. Anybody else? Other questions? One of the other things that we will be doing, I hope, in the new building, um, eventually the tenants that we still have in the lower part of the building that we bought are going to move out. And when they do, we're going to expand the food shelf, and the food shelf will become about twice the size it is today. We want to move to a model that instead of us packing up orders for the people that are coming in, people have the opportunity to, to, to go through the food shelf and select foods that are more appropriate for their family. So we will be recruiting a set of volunteers who will be there, not the same person, but who will be there every day to assist people in their shopping experience in the, the, this new food shelf, to make sure, frankly, that they take what they're eligible to take, because that's one of the problems that these kind of self-service programs have. People are, could, size of their family, could allow them to take, pick a number, six cans of soup, but they only take two, because they don't want to take more than they should. So we want to accompany them through the, the, the place to say, no, you know what, you can take six and you can take a variety. So help yourself to more of that so that your family is getting the food and the nutrition that they need. And so that will be a new model for us when we get to that, and it may be a year uh, before we can get to that point. But that will be a new volunteer program that we will be recruiting for when the time comes to do that. And that's a way for people to get very directly involved right. with individuals. And where's the new facility? Uh, it's on the corner of Grand Avenue and 3rd Avenue in South St. Paul. Most of you probably don't know South St. Paul, but uh, Concord Boulevard runs north-south from St. Paul all the way out to Invergrove Heights. Uh, in the middle of that, there is Con a Grand Avenue that, that crosses Concord Boulevard. If you've ever seen the building they call the old castle, 
sits on the corner of Grand Avenue and, and uh, uh, Concord Boulevard, come up the hill two blocks and Grand Avenue makes a sharp bend to the right and Third Avenue makes a sharp bend to the left. The building on the corner of Grand Avenue okay. in the bend is our new building. Okay. Good to know. Uh, I'm guessing that the answer to this question is yes, um, but need for bilingual oh, uh, yeah. Spanish. Yeah, mostly Spanish have... in our experience, but yeah, absolutely. Okay. And we try to put a lot of stuff in, in Spanish, try to put our written materials in okay. Spanish. One of the things we've discovered, um, especially with a lot of the immigrant families that, that are, are now here, um, they don't speak or read English, but they also don't read Spanish. They speak Spanish, but they don't read Spanish. And so we get as much as we can printed in Spanish, but it's still really critical for us to have people there who can speak Great. Spanish. Great. Uh, would you guys join me in thanking John for being here? And um, appreciate it. Thanks, bud. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to close, and Ben's going to lead us with one more song. And as he comes and does that, I would just say this, um, and I'll be brutally honest here, which is a real shocker for me, right? <clears throat> um, I spoke earlier about, I feel like for this community, for me personally, uh, for my family, and I think for, for us as a community, um, the next step is to, to move from being well-informed people about hunger and poverty to being people who have relationships with people who, uh, who struggle with these kinds of issues that we're talking about. Um, and I think it's easy. It's easier for us to stay here. It's easier for me to stay here um, and to do a few things here and there um, that maybe make me feel less guilty. Um, and I just want to challenge you as a community to, to pray, um, to start there and, and to say, uh, God, what's the next step for me? What's the next step for us as a family? Uh, and I think it's going to look different for each of us because we're in different places in life. We have different schedules and all that kind of stuff. But I want to just challenge you um, to, to ask that question and to spend some time thinking about that. Um, and, and I will commit uh, to us doing that as a family as well. It's something that we've been talking about uh, and feel like we need to act on. Um, so I just want to give that challenge to you. Mm -hmm.